make your way to Colossians chapter 2 as we look through God's good word together here this morning. Picking it up in verse 15 where we left off last week here. And last week we looked at the, the blessing and the riches that we have in Christ. And as we have received Christ, Paul said, so walk in him. Not just walk in him, but be firmly rooted and built up and established in Christ. So we learned how, you know, there's this discipleship process that Jesus is not just the beginning or the starting point for the believer. A lot of people look at Jesus like, okay, I found Jesus, great. Now I can just kind of go my merry way. Jesus is not just the beginning point, he's the end, and he's every blessed, wonderful point in between right? It's a wonderful, marvelous journey that we're on with Jesus where we continue to desire to grow in him, learn of him, and be established in him to where we recognize that we are to be consistently dependent on him. It's not coming to Christ and then moving away. It's coming to Christ, staying in him, growing in him, and being consistently dependent on him. Well, Paul is going to be addressing some of this because we understand that there's a real enemy at work that is looking to derail you, to lead you away from Christ. We have an active enemy looking to do everything he can to get you to move away from Christ. And this is where we need to stand strong and stay true to Jesus. This is where Paul takes us here in verse eight of Colossians two. Look at that, it says this. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul is, is calling out to believers to be very active and on the lookout, on the lookout for those that might come in on behalf of the enemy as he's looking to raise up false teachers to go out into the church, and which is what Paul is directly looking to confront and oppose because that was the situation happening at the church in Colossus that he's writing to. False teachers were coming in, looking to change the gospel and, and sort of corrupt the truth and, and move people away from Christ. Paul says, beware, be on the lookout. This is kind of term to like be observant and watchful to know that the enemy is out there and all throughout scripture. We have that warning and admonition, right? To beware. Because your enemy is like that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to be steadfast, stand strong, be watchful, be sober, be vigilant. So all along throughout scripture, we have that, that great warning and encouragement to beware. So Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. So that's one way that the enemy loves to come in is to cheat you through different means. That word cheat is an interesting word. It's that idea of like capture or to, you know, carry one off as a captive or a slave. So this is the ploy of the enemy to come in and look to kind of capture you. And oftentimes that's going to be in a way that is seemingly very attractive, right? He's not going to come in and be like, blah, I'm the evil one, you know, come and follow me. It's going to be like, he's going to come in with some kind of attractive means that is meant to cheat you, take you captive, and lead you away as a, a prisoner or a slave, removing you from the blessing and the freedoms that we have 
in Christ. This is what Satan is doing, and this is what Paul is referring to by that idea of don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let them lead you away. And again, it's kind of like this imagery that Paul's going to use a couple times in this passage we're going to look at today. It's this imagery of like a, a Roman general who'd go into battle and bring back with him the captured prisoners in this public spectacle. And they'd be stripped of their home, stripped of possessions, stripped of all their freedoms. Paul now is saying, don't let anyone lead you away from the things that you may have been grounded in. Don't let anyone remove you from the freedoms we have in Christ. Don't let them remove you from, from your place in Christ. And so how is this done? Paul's gonna name a few different ways that this is done. First of all, through philosophy. And Paul's not implying that philosophy is bad. Anybody studied philosophy in school or university? Anybody? Okay, philosophy is not a bad thing. Philosophy simply means the love of wisdom. That's a good thing. We should all love wisdom. Paul showed his kind of understanding for or uh, idea of philosophy when he went in Acts 17 and spoke to the to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers at, at uh, on wisdom. Spoke to them there at Athens. Wisdom is a, is a good thing, but the supposed wisdom of these false teachers came in with kind of these flowery words. This sort of like you know were very intelligent, highly educated people, and they spouted out this philosophy that was ultimately just empty deceit. That's what Paul says here. Don't anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. See, these false teachers came in, they made their teaching sound like it was the latest and greatest, like it was so wonderful, and yet it just left you empty. There's no substance to it. You would hear them and go, man, these guys must really know what they're talking about. These guys must really be authoritative. We better really track with what they're saying because it sounds so good. I need them to help me learn. That's kind of what they were doing. And yet, as you followed along, it just left you more and more empty. It was empty deceit. That's the work of the enemy. Case in point of uh, a something like this, you know, sounding really good and just being empty deceit was, is uh, with Edwin Newman and in his classic Strictly Speaking book that he wrote with the subtitle, Will America Be the Death of English? He cites an unintentionally humorous example of this very kind of philosophical and empty deceit. It was found in a working paper of Hampshire College. Newman says that the language of this paper outlining the plans for the college has never been equaled. Here's what it said. It said that social structure should optimally be the constant pattern expression of culture. That higher education is enmeshed in the conjuries of social and political change. That the field of the humanities suffers from a surfeit of leeching, its blood drawn out by verbalism, explication of text, Alexandrian scholasticism, and the exquisite preciosities and pretentiousness in contem of contemporary literary criticism that a formal curriculum of academic substance and sequence should not be expected to contain. Mirabelli, which will bring all the educative ends of the college to pass, that any formal curriculum should contain a higher frangibility factor. Woo! How about that? And so you look at it and you go, boy, that said a lot, but yet said absolutely nothing of benefit or help to me. I'm looking at it going, what did I just read? I have no idea. I have no idea what this person is trying to say. It sounds good. Wouldn't you say, you look at it and go, that guy's highly educated. Boy, that guy can really have some you know, great uh, 
word circus stuff going on there, but it does not help. It sounds wise, but yet what does it do? It leaves you very empty. Sounds wise, but there's no takeaway, no benefit. It, it leaves you empty. It's empty deceit. That's the way the enemy has always operated. Satan is the father of lies. He is the master of deceit. He knows exactly how to come in to kind of derail you, to lead you astray, to throw things at you that make you go, oh, that makes sense. That sounds good. That sounds like something I should really track with. And yet in the end, it leaves you empty. There's no substance to it because it's leading you away from the very one that we are going to find life in, and that's in Jesus Christ. And that's Satan's ploy in everything he does is simply to lead you away from Christ. Satan doesn't care if you don't stop and say, okay, I'm gonna worship you, Satan. I'm gonna give my allegiance to you. He doesn't care about that. He just wants people to be led away from Christ and, and keeping Christ the central point or place of dependability for salvation and life. We shouldn't be surprised by Satan's ploys or his tactics, but we need, like Paul says, to beware, be on the lookout. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's Satan's devices right there. Deceit, lies, seeking to present something that looks good, sounds good, but it's meant to draw you away from Christ. And if it draws you away from Christ, it is not good. And you need to be aware of those things. Don't be ignorant of some of the methods Satan employs to derail, to derail you. And so Paul continues to list some of these methods. We've seen philosophy and empty deceit, but secondly, talks about traditions of men, and thirdly, the basic principles of the world. So tradition of men now. The problem with all that these false teachers were doing was they were looking to kind of rely on traditions of men. And, and what happens with tradition is that it often begins to overrule God's word. You begin to uphold tradition to the point where you say, man, this is gospel truth. We can't change this. We can't, we can't veer away from this. This is what we need to uphold. And it begins oftentimes, sadly without even realizing it, to trump God's word and to overrule God's word. You know, Jesus had to confront this and deal with this from the religious leaders who were the ones that oftentimes opposed Jesus. Well, Jesus had to oppose them and the things that they were ultimately living for, which was tradition over obedience to God's word. Look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter seven, verse six. He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. What were they doing? They're, they're rejecting the commandments of God so that they might keep their traditions. They're saying, this is what we want to really uphold. This is what's really important to us. And you see, tradition so often robs you from walking in the freedom and the blessing of the truth that we have in God's word. Tradition will often add to the word. It brings neglect of the word and causes people to oftentimes walk contrary to the word of God for the sake of simply retaining their tradition. 
Case in point again, I love the story of a, a young monk that came into a monastery and was assigned to help the other monks in copying the old canons and laws of the church by hand. And he noticed, however, that all the monks were simply copying from copies, not from the original manuscripts. And so the new monk goes to the head abbot to question this, pointing out that if one mistake was made in one of those copies, well, it would be perpetuated onto all the other copies. And the old abbot simply said, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries. Although you do make a good point here, my son. So that old abbot went down into the dark caves underneath the monastery where the original manuscripts were held as archives in a locked vault that hadn't been opened for hundreds of years. Hours go by and nobody sees the old abbot. So the young monk starts to wonder and get a little concerned. So he goes down into that cave under the monastery and he sees the old abbot just banging his head up against the wall and he's yelling out we forgot the r or we missed the r we missed the r we missed the r he's crying out his forehead is all bloody and he's crying out uncontrollably and the young monk asked the old abbot what's wrong father and with a choking voice the old abbot replied the word was celebrate <laughs> we missed the r celebrate I'll explain that to the group in the back there later on uh, Jace I'll fill you in later don't worry about it um, but see we can uphold tradition so much that we we move away from what God's word simply says and if we move away from what God's word simply says, we're moving away from Christ. And this is what so often happens. And religious leaders will come and they'll uphold tradition. They'll uphold, you know, legalism as the way to be right with God. And yet it so often runs contrary to God's word. Don't let yourself be deceived by tradition that might make you feel like you're following the the right path when in actuality you've been led down and taken captive through philosophy and empty deceit that's not grounded in God's word at all. And so not only do we see philosophy, tradition of men, but now Paul mentions the basic principles of the world. Of the world. And, and that could mean a couple different things here. Paul uses an interesting word for basic principles. He uses the Greek word stoikion, which originally meant a line of things or the first principle, it, it came to be known more as the elementary knowledge or primary fundamentals. This would refer to like the ABCs of this world. And so these false teachers were coming and thinking they were excelling or graduating to greater things as they began to unlock all this secret knowledge they said you needed to attain to, to be right with God. But as Paul says, this is no upgrade at all. In fact, they're just kind of looking at elementary stuff here, basic stuff that would not at all bring you what you truly needed. So it could mean that he's speaking about this elementary knowledge, the uh, ABCs uh, of things, but he could also be speaking of the basic principles as the principalities or spiritual forces that were at work in deceiving and leading people away. That was no doubt the influence behind a lot of these false teachers or religious people that were running contrary to God's word. And Paul, in the context of Colossians, speaks a lot about how Christ is head over all principalities and powers, whether they be earthly rulers or, or rulers in the spiritual realm. 
demonic forces, whatever it might be. The context of Colossians alludes to that a lot, that Jesus is head over all of those, that we're going to see that later in our text. So it could be that Paul is speaking about the elementary truths or the principalities and the spiritual forces that are at work. But whatever Paul was referring to, the outcome is the same. What does the end of verse 8 say? That this was not according to Christ. The problem was nobody was lining up to what Jesus had commanded of us or, or, or told us or revealed to us. These things were all leading people away from Christ. These were things that they were grabbing onto that was cheating them, leading them astray because it wasn't according to Christ. It wasn't of Christ. See, everything that we need can be found in one person, one source. It's found in Jesus, isn't it? Amen? Amen. All that we need, my friends, is found in Jesus. And yet, this church here was being deceived to think that there were alternatives at work that would gain you advantages, gain you uh, closeness with God. There were alternatives at work, but Paul says, no, no, no. It's all found in Christ. Look at what he says next in verse nine here. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Listen, if you mark your Bibles, which I, I encourage you, underline, highlight, circle, put some arrows to it, whatever you need to do, but those six words in verse 10 are huge. Those need to be highlighted. You are complete in Christ, my friends. Everything that you need is found in him. This is what Paul is saying here. You don't need some alternatives. You don't need someone else to tell you how to find this life or union with God. It's found in Christ. And you see, these false teachers were trying to tell people, if you want to know God in a more full way, well, we can unlock these secrets of knowledge. That's, again, this false heretical teaching that later became known as Gnosticism. The word Gnosis, to know in the Greek. These were the people in the know. They're saying, we're the ones that can really reveal to you how to be right with God. And, and they began to teach, you know, that, well, all matter was evil, so God couldn't have created the universe. So instead, God created all these different emanations, these spiritual beings that got so far down the line that one was so far removed from God that he was able to create all the, the heavens and the earth. And he himself was evil. And so Jesus now, they said, was just one of these emanations, just one of these, these created beings in line up to reaching God. But Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus is not just one of many. He is it. And Paul says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Another heresy that they began to teach was, was since all matter is evil, Christ couldn't have had a physical body. He came just as kind of a, a spiritual, you know, phantom even. Just a spiritual being. He didn't have an earthly body. And yet, what does Paul say? He alludes that. He, he touches on that. He says that all the fullness of the, uh, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in bodily form. Paul is, is refuting these arguments that these false teachers were saying by saying Jesus came fully as a man in, in human form. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. Now, all cults are gonna sway on one side or the other. They're gonna, they're gonna corrupt who Jesus is. 
all the different cults that are, are work, nobody will come and say he was fully God and fully man. They always are corrupted on one way or the other. These people are saying he couldn't come as one of us. Most of the time, cults today say, no, he only came as one of us and he was not fully God. So here Paul is correcting those views that are, are, are coming into the church, seeking to take people away from Christ. But what Paul says is, Jesus is not just one of many steps on your way to God, he's it. And you are complete in him. He's all that you need. You don't have to add to him. You don't need to, you don't need to go through any other hoops to be right with God. You're complete in him. There's nothing to add. That famous movie line, you know, you complete me, right? Is a, is a fallacy at best. It may sound nice, but you see, if you are looking for someone else to fulfill you or something to complete you, you will never be content. Because our contentment and our completion is found in Christ and in him alone. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Everything in life where we may feel incomplete is because we have failed to understand the all-sufficiency of Christ. Everything in life where you might feel incomplete because you've not realized the all-sufficiency of Christ, the completion we have in him. If you're going through life right now and you're, you're feeling, oh, if I only had that, or if I could only be able to do this, if God would just let this happen in my life, if those are statements that you're making, you're not enjoying the abundant life that Jesus has for you. Because Paul says right here very clearly, you're complete in Christ. When you come to Christ and receive his life, you have everything that you need. I'm not saying that your life is gonna be magically perfect and wonderful now, that you're never gonna have problems, but even in the midst of our problems, Jesus is enough. We're still complete in him. We have all that we need. Are you content? Are you experiencing that blessed life of Christ no matter what you might be experiencing or feeling here presently? Because that's the way it should be for the believer where we understand that completion in Christ. And, and I love what David Guzik says. He says, this is not a status to be achieved. This is a fact to be enjoyed. This is not something to be achieved. This is something to be enjoyed right now. Because why? What does Paul say? He doesn't say, well... Come to Christ and you will be complete in him. Come to Christ and you may attain to, no, he says, you are complete in Christ. If you are a born again believer today, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are presently, right now, the reality in your life today is that you are complete in Christ. You have all that you need. You excited for that today? You have everything you need, it's done complete see another component to this heresy creeping in a class was continuing on in verse 10 that there were those that began to have an unhealthy view of you know um, the spiritual world they even began to worship angels as Paul's going to be touching on in Colossians but to that Paul says that Jesus is the head of all principality and power he's above all every earthly force and governing power, every spiritual force. Paul says Jesus is not just greater, he's 
over everything, reigning preeminently. He's the creator of everything. Jesus is it. He's not just, you know, along the line kind of top dog, even though you could make an argument, yes, he's top dog, but the issue is that he's not just kind of like one uh, of many that's sort of, you know, uh, greater than, he is above all, he's the creator of all, he's in a whole different category because he's God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you're complete in him. There's no other channels that you need to go through. There's no other thing that you need to do to be right with God. It's all found in Christ. You're complete in him. This is what Paul is alluding to. Now, now we begin to see, starting in verse 11, some of the ways that we are indeed complete in Christ. Verse 11 says, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So remember, this was a big issue in the early church. As Gentiles started to come to the faith, well, you had your, your Jewish you know, traditionalists saying, well, if they're gonna come in and claim to be you know, in relationship with God, well, they better be circumcised then, right? That's just what we do, that's our, our tradition. You gotta be circumcised. I mean, could you imagine if somebody came in a church today and said, I am ready to give my life to Jesus. I wanna receive that eternal life. And I said, that's great. But first we're just gonna have to do a little medical procedure. I don't know your <laughs> tolerance for pain, but it's gonna be tested today. Uh, you'd be looking like going, well, no, man, why do we have to make this so hard? This, isn't, this should be an easy thing. It's, it, it's all wrapped up in Christ, and it is. But you see, all through the early church, they were struggling on all these things. Like, what do you need to do? Do you need to follow this? Do you need to do that? Paul says, no. First of all, circumcision was never meant to be a religious ritual that now made us right with God. It was always meant to be a picture of what God wants to do in and through our lives. And that was to circumcise us not with hands, but to circumcise us in the flesh. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, Paul says there in verse 11. That's what circumcision was always to be. It was to be that outward, uh, it, it was to be uh, not an outward physical act, but again, an inward spiritual act. And, and that's what Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Do you see that? It's not that which is outward in the flesh, it's inward, it's that of the heart. It's circumcision was to be a picture of the cutting away the flesh inwardly where that old man, that old nature that dominated us was now to be cut away where you've been made new in and through Jesus Christ. He's the one that does that work. That's why Paul says it's by the circumcision of Christ. He's the one that removes that flesh. He's the one that makes you new. Goes on to talk about baptism, another thing that was upheld in the early church. Baptism is a, a good thing. Let's read this verse, you know, comment on it. But verse 12 says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul adds a picture of baptism. Again, baptism does not save you. Baptism is not something we do to say, oh, I got to really secure my place. I got to cover my bases here. 
What do I need to do? Baptism, take communion. What? I, give it to me all. Let me take everything I can. I just want to. I just want to really ensure that I'm going to be right with God. And sometimes we look at all these different things as like this is going to save me. This is going to make me right with God. Now, baptism is a great thing. We continue on in baptism because we believe this is what Jesus has taught, and this is the walk of the obedient life. Baptism simply becomes an opportunity to testify of the work that Jesus has done inwardly. Baptism becomes now an outward display of what Jesus has done inwardly. To where in baptism, we submerse in the water. It's like we're saying we're laying down the old man. That person that dominated us, that old man is being buried. It's been cut off through that circumcision of Christ, cut off, but we're being raised up in newness of life in Jesus Christ, washed clean, forgiven, of all of our sin. That's what baptism becomes a picture of. So any believer should say, man, if I have an opportunity to testify what Christ has done, let me do it. Baptism becomes that opportunity. It's commanded by, by God to do. It's instructed for us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, it's simply an expression outwardly of what Christ has done inwardly. And then verse 13, and you now, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Paul is just, again, tying this all in together uh, of the important work that Jesus has done because here is your condition. He says, and you, every single one of us, we were dead in your trespasses, in your faults, in your wrongdoings, your, in your, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, we were being governed by the old nature, the flesh that was at war with God. We were dead. We needed saving. And what Paul is saying is that only Jesus can do that. You're not going to find life by going to some other alternative or some other means or by following some religious practice. None of those things are going to save you. It's found in Jesus Christ. You were dead, and the only hope of life was in Jesus Christ, who has made us alive together with him. God has done that work in raising us up now in Christ. The death that Jesus died, he died for you and for me. He was buried, but he rose again three days later to give you life, to secure life for you. He's forgiven you of all trespasses. That's why, why we know that we are forgiven because Jesus died, but he rose again. In other words, that work that he did on the cross, it was accepted and it was validated by God who raised him up from the dead to say the work is complete. Notice what Paul goes on to say here in, in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, our condition was that we were dead in our trespasses. We had a long list of faults and guilt. When it talks about the handwriting of requirements, I could be speaking of the law, the law that said, here's what you need to do in order to be right with God. A lot of people love to say, oh, I, I live by the, you know, Ten Commandments. You know, I do pretty well with not murdering and committing adultery I think as long as I'm covering some of them, I should be okay. 
Well, I feel love to live by the Ten Commandments, and as soon as you get into, well, how many lies have you told? Well, I mean, come on, everybody lies once in a while. You ever take anything that's not your own? Oh, well, taking a few things, primarily just, you know, pens from the church and stuff. Like that. But <laughs> they're not big things, right? I, yeah, I can't really call that stealing, but yet, but yet all these things reveal to you, you broke the law. And what does the, the Word of God say? If you break one part of the law, you, as though you've broken it all. So what happens is when we try to live up to the law, we recognize that we are guilty. That's the handwriting requirements against us. It shows our guilt. Shows that we're in trouble. It was against us. It was contrary to us, Paul says. Nothing we could do to fix that would be right because the law was not given to save us. The law was given to show us that we needed saving because we were wretched people. We were guilty people. We were sinners. The law is given to reveal that and appoint us to the one that fulfills the law, Jesus Christ, by which we find salvation. So this is what Paul is saying. Man, that handwriting requirements was against us. You're in trouble. But through Jesus Christ, he's wiped it out. He's taken it out of the way. In this day, when you had a debt it was written on a note signed by the debtor acknowledging their note or their debt. And you see, we had quite a long list, quite a big debt. What, what was our debt? Our debt was death, ultimately. See, the wages of sin is death. We're sinners. We were guilty. For us to pay that debt would be at the cost of our life, but not just given up our life, life eternally separated from God. God didn't want that. God provided a way out of that. He sent his son to die in our place so that all those that put their trust in him, that debt that you owed, that list of guilt could be wiped clean, erased. That's what it says here. It's been wiped out. It's been cleansed. It's been nailed to the cross. See, just as when a criminal was crucified, they would write his offense on a board and nail it to the cross. Jesus nailed all of our offenses on the cross with him as he died for each one and he paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. This is not just some kind of wonderful act to say, look at how awesome I am. He said, this is what's needed for you to be set free. This is what's needed for you to be cleansed because your debt costs a life and I'm gonna give my life in place of yours. I'm gonna die and I'm gonna pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be forgiven. You know what Jesus said on the cross? He said, it is finished. He used a great word, tetelestai, which means it's paid in full. That IOU that you had, that debt that you said, I'm you know, needing to pay this off, Jesus says, it's now paid in full the work that I've done for you. He's erased it all. He's done the work for us. And we need to be those that receive that, that accept that. He's made us alive together with him, verse 13. Having forgiven you all trespasses, have you received that? Have you been made alive in Christ? You see, the Christian life is not about trying to reform our nature Salvation is not the improvement of the old nature, it's the impartation of a new nature. 
all given to us through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. And, and so this means now because of what Jesus has done, the slate is wiped clean, your past mistakes or sin is covered, it means that the enemy can't come against you any longer and use that against you. And isn't that the way the enemy loves to operate against you? He loves to come and remind you of your sin, of your mistakes, that you can't be accepted before God, that God can't love you, that God can't accept you. Look at how awful you've been. Doesn't the enemy love to do that? But notice what we're reminded of here now, of what Jesus has not only done for us, but what he's done to the enemy here. Look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. See, at that moment that Jesus hung on that cross, I'm sure Satan and all of his demons were rejoicing, thinking victory was theirs. For three days, I'm sure they sat there and thought, man, we did it. Woo. That was a tough one, but we got there. We did it. I would love to see what they were thinking three days later when suddenly that earth began to tremble and Jesus burst through that grave and rose again. I would just love to see their face thinking, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. And that's it. They've been defeated. They've been defeated. Oh, Satan is still active in the world, but he knows he's a defeated being. And all he's trying to do is keep you away from Christ, keep you moving away from Christ, trying to displace you, trying to derail you trying to cheat you like we saw there in verse eight, trying to cheat you through all these different means that might sound good, they might sound spiritual, but if they lead you away from Christ, there's no salvific um, measure to it. It gains nothing for you. When Satan comes and reminds you of your sin, of your faults, you remind him that verse 14 says, it's been wiped clean, I'm forgiven. I'm in Christ. Christ has all the victory. To remind him that he's a defeated foe. And when he disarmed principalities and powers again, that's that, that picture analogy that Paul alluded to earlier with that Roman general who would, who's won a notable victory and he was allowed to march through the streets with his victorious army showing all of their spoils and captives. So Jesus has done with the demons and spiritual enemies of Christ. They're stripped of their armor, their weapons. In other words, we as Christians should not let them continue to act as though they have the upper hand because they do not. We have the victory in Jesus. We do not fight for victory. We fight from the position of victory because it's been given to us in and through Jesus Christ. Amen. So may we stand our ground and, and stand true to Jesus Christ, right? Don't let anything move you away from Christ because you are complete in him. That's all we need. He's done it all for us. There's nothing else that we can add to that. There's nothing we can do to improve upon that. There's nothing we can do to help our cause aside from continue in Jesus Christ, leaning on him, depending on him, abiding in him. It's all found in him. You're complete in him. Worship team, would you come? As they make their way up here, here's some of the summary of the believer's completeness in Christ. First of all, we see the domination of our flesh
has been broken. Our former manner of life has ended. We've been raised from spiritual death. We've been given new life. Our transgressions have been forgiven. Our debt to God has been paid. And our spiritual enemy has been defeated. It's a great blessing we have as believers in Jesus here today. And we're going to come this morning as we end our services in a time of worship and waiting on the Lord Jesus, just a time of response to the things we looked at. And maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're watching online and this has been something you've been kind of putting off or thinking, I'm going to keep trying to do my best to be right with God. And you have not simply surrendered and said, Jesus, you're all I need. You've done the work. I need to put my trust in you. I'm here to invite you to say, stop running, stop putting it off, stop looking to other means. It's not going to church that saves you. It's not following a religious ritual that makes you right with God. It's admitting your sin and putting your full trust in the work Jesus did for you and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. If you've not done that today, I invite you to do that. You don't have to do anything complicated. You just simply need to say, Jesus, I'm turning to you right now. I'm asking you, forgive me my sin. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. Come and make me new. The Bible says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That's what he wants to do in your life today. Would you receive him? Would you give your life to him if you've not done that? It's a free gift. It's by his grace. You do nothing to earn it. You simply accept it. That's what grace is all about. For the rest of us, we're going to take time just to wait on the Lord and to respond to the word. And we're going to come to the Lord's table as we celebrate communion today. And, and we've looked at some wonderful verses here that remind us of what we are celebrating that we who once were dead have been made alive and we've been forgiven all trespasses. Isn't that wonderful? All trespasses, my friends, every single one have been forgiven if you put your trust in Jesus. And we're gonna hand out the emblems of communion and the, the bread simply represents the body of Christ that was broken on the cross, his blood that was shed, the, picturing the juice here, or the juice picturing his blood, simply reminds us that his sacrifice was complete and full. He died. His blood was shed. He gave his life so that we could gain life. And we celebrate that today. Jesus says to do this in remembrance of him. We don't do this as some kind of act that saves us. We do this simply to rejoice in the work he's done for us in saving us and making us new. So let's stand together and we're going to worship the Lord and the emblems are going to be passed out. As they're passed out, we're going to just invite you to partake of that on your own. We're not going to do that collectively together here today. But we're going to ask you just to do that on your own and to do so with thanksgiving and in remembrance of the life we have in and because of Jesus Christ. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time together today to remember you and remember all that you've done for us. We rejoice, Lord, because you've, you've just saved us. You've given us newness of life and we're a blessed bunch and we thank you for that. Lord, as we partake of communion today, may we do this with grateful hearts, with thankful hearts and do so in remembrance that you alone have done all the work to save us. You laid your life down so that we wouldn't have to. And because of that, we've been given new life, forgiven all of our sins, 
And today we stand here complete in you. What a blessing. So we thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. Let's wait on the Lord and partake of communion as you're led to do so this morning.